Hello and welcome to This Shit Really Happened, the true crime podcast where we deep dive to the most disturbing, depraved, and downright gruesome true crimes in history. My name is Em, and welcome to part two of The Freeway Killer. Um, I am recording this on a Monday in anticipation of getting it out on Tuesday for you guys. And let me tell you, I am so surprised <laughs> that I'm actually sitting down to record this right now because I have been currently so here's here's a little tidbit about me is I will latch on to hyper fixations with things like it's nobody's business and like that is just the one thing I'll be just absolutely obsessed with for who knows how long whenever the hyperfixation fades and then I move on to something else. So I have been meaning to record this episode for the past like three days. I, I kid you guys not like I wanted to get it recorded, just upload it into, you know, my feed, set it up so it will it'll upload, you know, noon on Tuesday. <laughs> Like I wanted to, and I wanted to have everybody, everybody, oh my gosh, everything prepared well in advance for it, try to get out of my habit of extreme procrastination, but my current hyperfixation, which has been um, Baldur's Gate 3, I have started playing Baldur's Gate, and I've seen it all over my TikTok, I've seen it all over my Twitter page, and I'm not... I'm not a gamer, so I usually don't really, unless it's like Animal Crossing or like the latest Pokemon game that I play on my Switch, I'm not usually so deeply invested in games like this. But ever since I started playing Baldur's Gate, I can't stop. I had full intentions yesterday to, you know, go in, record this episode, and then the day before, like a couple days before, it was the same exact thing where I, I woke up, I was like, okay, like I'm gonna record the episode today, I'm gonna get everything taken care of, and then, you know, I feel that calling to me, that little voice in the back of my head that's like, don't record an episode, just go play some more Baldur's Gate, and that has been happening to me all week this week I was up until two in the morning yesterday <laughs> playing Baldur's Gate I had played for like probably five or six hours straight so was it just absolutely just like rotting away playing this game but I I can't stop it's so good if any of you listening have ever played it or if you're thinking about playing it I 100% recommend it um, it's such a deeply in-depth, immersive game. And even if you've never done anything with like Dungeons and Dragons in your entire life, you know, the mechanics, it, it took a little while for me to figure it out. But after I figured everything out, mind you, I am playing on the easiest difficulty. <laughs> so maybe when I go through and do more than one playthrough as, you know, is typical for this game, maybe I'll adjust my difficulty. But I started playing in like the mid-level, like I guess like the normal difficulty you should you could say. 
Um, and I was, I was getting nowhere. I was just getting, my whole party was just getting beat up. Everybody was dying. I had to keep like reloading and saving just to get from point A to point B. So I did drop it down to the easiest difficulty and now I'm cruising. I just, I'm about to finish with act one and go into act two. So I'm really excited about that. I'm just trying to, you know, tie up some loose ends, raid a few more camps, fight a few more enemies, get some more experience points and level up before I go into act two. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been completely taking over my brain. So I am proud of myself finally sitting down and recording this episode so I can get part two out for you guys when I said I was going to get part two out for you guys. I'm trying to be more consistent with getting these episodes out versus, you know, in the past I was like, yeah, you might get one consistently or you might have to wait six months between episodes before you get one. And I know that can be a real pain. So um, I I made myself sit down and get this episode out because my notes have been done for, you know, the past week now. I went and touched everything up and it was literally just a matter of me being able to sit myself down and say, all right, get it together. You're going to record this episode. Uh, So now here we are. And when I'm done recording, you bet I'm probably going to go straight into Baldur's Gate again and (laughs) pick up where I left off last night. Um, But speaking of picking up where we left off, like I mentioned previously in the beginning, this is part two of the Freeway Killer case. So uh, I do want to give some additional general trigger warnings for this. Um, This part is going to be quite long and also quite heavy. We are going to be speaking a lot about, you know, similar things that we spoke about in part one. Um, kidnapping, sexual assault, um, murder, um, abuse, and um, murder of young men, typically in their their teenage years. So you know, just please be advised that that is what the content of this episode is going to be. And as always, if this is not your cup of tea, feel free to you know skip this part, and we'll see in the next one. But. For those of you who are coming back from part one and are ready to dive into part two, we're going to go ahead and get into it. So we're picking right up where we left off in part one. And if you're coming into this straight off of part one, good for you. You have it fresh in your head. But for those of us where, you know, this might be two weeks or so off from, from part one, Where we left off in part one, William Bonin had just been released from jail after he'd violated his parole for molesting a 17-year-old boy, and he vowed to his friend Everett Frazier that he was never going to let any of his victims escape to testify against him ever again. So instead of vowing to better himself as a person and not do this to people anymore, he is simply vowing that he is just not going to let people live to testify against him ever again. So, you know, being the blight on humanity that he is, that's the route that he decides to take here. By this time, when Bonin was released from prison, he had also returned to his parents' house where he gradually started to develop a reputation as a child molester among local residents due to his habit of inviting young boys into the household. Occasionally, his mother, younger brother, and others were present under the guise of providing free alcohol and viewing pornography with them. 
Some neighbors later recollected frequently observing young boys accompanying Bonin into the residence, some of whom they would later hear screaming and crying once inside. Which, I'm not sure if these neighbors called the police when they heard these things. I couldn't find that anywhere, but just a word of advice. If you, it is better to be nosy and have nothing be wrong than not be nosy and have shit like this be happening. Because 100% I can guarantee you things were happening to those boys in that house. When neighbors were hearing the screaming and the crying coming from that house, it was because something was happening to these boys. So I hope that some of these neighbors would have called the police, but knowing human nature and the bystander effect and, you know, people's desire to this is this was not a time to, you know, be on mind your business level 10,000. This was a time to be on be nosy as hell level 10,000 because it, it really makes me wonder how many of these, you know, poor boys that were brought into this house, what did they have done to them? You know, we can unfortunately imagine what was done to these boys because of what William Bonin's history was. But how how many of how many of those boys could have been spared this fate if the neighbors had just been nosy and called the police, you know, for the benefit of just making sure nothing was going on? I mean, if you hear, like, if it's just a one-time thing, sure. Maybe that's a fluke. Maybe something happened. Maybe there was a fight going on. But if this is something that you're hearing constantly, which from, you know, these sources I was looking this information up in, this stuff was constant. That is the prime time to get nosy and start minding other people's business. Call the police. Have them check out what's going on. Please. (laughs) Word of advice, just for the general benefit of society, if you hear or see something, please say something. And that is my public service announcement for, for this point. Also, in spite of the fact that multiple neighbors had heard screaming and crying coming from inside this house and also could testify to the fact that Bonin's mother and brother were home at the time a lot of these boys were brought into the house, his mother and younger brother, they claim to have never witnessed Bonin abuse any young boys, which you want my opinion on that i think it's a crock of shit i think they're lying through their teeth to try to save their own ass but you know trash people will defend other trash people so it was not long after his release that bonin returned to his brutal crime spree um on august 20th 1979 bonin picked up 18 year old robert weirastek who was cycling to a grocery store in newport beach before Bonin allegedly coaxed him into his van by offering him $50 to perform acts of oral copulation. He then bound and raped Robert at knife point before driving to his accomplice Vernon Butts' residence, where he picked Butts up so he could join in on the act. While driving on Interstate 10, Butts performed oral sex on Robert before repeatedly striking him and taking Bonin's place behind the wheel, who then, Bonin then went into the back of the van and began to torture Robert by bending his fingers and squeezing his genitals before extensively bludgeoning him with a tire iron and strangling him with his t-shirt. Robert's body was dumped and it was found on September 27th alongside Interstate 10. 
On August 27, 1979, Bonin and Butts abducted 15-year-old uh, Donald Ray Hyden at approximately 1 a.m. on Santa Monica Boulevard. When Bonin spotted Donald, he swerved across multiple lanes of traffic. Donald stopped to speak with Bonin, and while they were talking, Vernon Butts actually started laughing from where he was laying down in the back of the van. And Donald hadn't noticed that Vernon Butts was in the van at this point. He was only talking with William Bonin. So when he sees that Vernon Butts is in the van as well, Donald gets scared. But Bonin reassured him and offered him $50, again, to perform sexual services for him. Donald agreed to this and got into the van. Bonin joined Donald in the back of the van while Vernon Butts drove. They began to engage in consensual sex acts, but when Butts took an accidental wrong turn, again, Donald got scared, and at this point, he starts to become frantic and tries to essentially escape, get away from Bonin, and get out of this van. And this this really angered Bonin, and this caused him to start extensively beating Donald, and he bound Donald up, he tied him up before he began torturing him and sodomizing him. Butts then threatened Donald, stating he, quote, entered the death van, and when someone enters, they don't go out alive. Bonin then proceeded to taunt Donald that he was going to kill him while strangling him with a bandana and tire iron. After Donald was deceased, Butts performed oral sex on Donald's corpse before the pair dumped the body at a construction site near the Ventura Freeway, where it was discovered only a few hours later. According to his autopsy, prior to his death by strangulation, Donald had been bound, beaten in the face, sodomized, then stabbed in the neck and genitalia, and bludgeoned. Evident attempts had also been made to remove his testicles and slash his throat, and there was heavy and extensive trauma to his anus, leading a coroner to surmise that he had been impaled there by a large object. On September 9, 1979, Bonin encountered 17-year-old David Lewis Marillo while David was riding his bike to a movie theater. After entering the van, Bonin offered him money for sex, which was refused. He then attempted to fondle David before binding him and driving the van to Butts' residence. Butts and Bonin again switched places, with Butts driving and Bonin moving to the back of the van with David. As Butts drove, Bonin forced David to perform oral sex on him before squeezing his genitals and sodomizing him. Bonin then traded places with Butts, who performed oral sex on and beat David before squeezing his genitals in frustration at David's apparent lack of sexual excitement. They then parked the vehicle at a secluded spot where David was bound, repeatedly raped by Bonin and Butts, extensively bludgeoned about the chest, neck, and skull with a tire iron, then strangled with a ligature before his nude body was thrown out of the van and over an embankment along Highway 101. David's nude body was discovered on September 12, 1979. Following this incident, Butts reportedly began exhibiting extremely bizarre behavior, at one point putting an axe blade to a close friend's throat and stating, quote, I'd like to see your blood gush out and hear your screams. So they're just absolutely blights on humanity. And it definitely seems that after he got comfortable with these things, Vernon Butts, he definitely started to display a lot uh, a lot more antisocial behavior and violent behavior than he had 
previously to him, you know, pairing up with William Bonin and doing these things. So there was a short break between um, Bonin's murder spree, I should say Bonin and Butts' murder spree, and they're not known to have killed again until on or about November 1st, 1979. So they took, I don't know, like, what is that, like a two and a half week break from um, the last murder to this one, which for them, that's that's a long break for them because they were just going absolutely, you know, insane with the frequency of when they were kidnapping and murdering these boys. So a two and a half, three week break for them was was long for them. So on or about November 1st, 1979, this is when he and Butts abducted and murdered an unidentified young man with brown hair whom Bonin claimed to be five foot six inches tall and 18 years old. This victim was savagely beaten repeatedly by Bonin and Butts, then strangled to death by Bonin before his fully clothed body was discarded in an irrigation ditch alongside State Route 99, which was just south of Bakersfield, California. During the ordeal, Bonin allegedly asked the victim whether he knew why he, quote, had to die. He further tormented the victim by saying, quote, your folks paid us to find you and kill you. Bonin strangled the victim before inserting an ice pick into his nostrils and right ear, which something, something about the ice pick, this was something we talked about in the toolbox killer case. It's just something about the brutality of an ice pick. It's different, in my opinion, than just like different. I don't know if different is the right word, but it feels more brutal, I guess I should say having it be an ice pick versus like a switchblade or a knife or some other blade because it's like sure you can stab things with stab and cut things with an ice pick but that's an ice pick was designed to pick ice it's in the name it's the same with like anything anything that is not meant to you know slice or cut or you know, stab things, I guess, like knives, anything else, like using screwdrivers, using ice picks, or just feels like there's such an additional level of brutality with those things. Because when you, like, sure, an ice pick does have a pointed end, a screwdriver, you know, does have a pointed end, but they're not, they're not designed to stab through something. They're not designed to be used that way. And so when you have somebody using those tools for those purposes, the fact that there has to be extra force put behind them and it just adds this terrible additional layer of terror and brutality when these perpetrators are using these sort of implements in their crime. So anytime I hear or research a case where there's like ice picks involved it really just sends a chill down my spine when i ugh, I'm, I'm literally i have chills right now I'm getting the heebie-jeebies just talking about it um so again this this man was or this young boy was unidentified and you know later when bonin is arrested he doesn't have any identifying information for this boy um and they were unfortunately apparently never able to identify the, you know, the victim of this crime. 
So again, after another quote-unquote short break for Bonin and Butts, um, Bonin actually went on to do his next um, crime alone. So this was approximately four weeks later on November 30th. Bonin, who again was operating alone this time, abducted 17-year-old Frank Dennis Fox. Bonin strangled Frank again with a ligature while still in the process of sodomizing him. Uh, Frank's body was found two days later alongside the Ortega Highway, five miles east of San Juan Capistrano. The body bore signs of extensive blunt force trauma to the face and head, with ligature marks on the wrist and ankles indicating Frank had been bound throughout his ordeal. No clothing or other identifying evidence was discovered at the scene. Ten days after the murder of Frank, 15-year-old John Frederick Kilpatrick was offered money for sexual services after leaving his parents' home to socialize with friends. And again, um, this was Bonin acting alone. So after engaging in mutual oral sex, John was bound and raped by Bonin in the van before being transported to Bonin's parents' house, where John was then extensively whipped with string until he cried and was then strangled to death with that same string. His body was discarded in a a remote area of Rialto. His body was then discovered on December 13th. Um, He actually remained known as a John Doe until August 5th of 1980, when he was finally identified. Because John, who was a troubled a troubled young man, you could say, whose parents had recently divorced, was he was known to disappear for days at a time. So his mother initially hesitated to report his disappearance. And his friends had also mistakenly reported seeing him at the mall, um, which he couldn't have been at the mall when they reported seeing him because at that point he had already been um, he had already been deceased. So as a result of this this false identification or this false recollection from his friends, he was not reported missing until February. And that is why, um, you know, it took so long for him to be identified. On January 1st, 1980, Bonin encountered 16-year-old Michael McDonald near the Chino Airport. Um, and Michael was actually from Ontario, Canada. Under the guise of providing drugs for him to sell, Bonin parked behind an apartment building before binding up um, before binding up Michael at knife point. He then beat Michael into submission before forcing him to perform oral sex on him um, before he was subjected by Bonin to genital squeezing and rape in the back of the van. Michael's fully clothed body was found along Highway 71 in the outskirts of Chino, although his body was not identified until March 20. So as I briefly mentioned in part one, when Bonin met Vernon Butts, he also at that same time had met um, 18-year-old Gregory Miley. So for the next two murders that Bonin committed, he actually had Miley join him as an accomplice. And this was on the morning of February 3rd, 1980. Bonin invited a 16-year-old boy into his parents' house to drink and engage in intercourse when Bonin briefly stepped out to use the bathroom, he allegedly caught this boy stealing $100 from his wallet. And this made Bonin absolutely furious. Um, but instead of, you know, enacting out this anger on this boy who he had invited into his home, which this is, it's such a kind of like 
bittersweet situation where, you know, this boy, he was lucky enough to escape from Bonin with his life, but unfortunately it meant that Bonin was going to take out his rage and his fury on another innocent victim. So after he was angered by catching this boy stealing from him, he decided that he needed to commit a murder later in that day in order to make himself feel better. So later that evening, Bonin drove from Downey to Hollywood with Gregory Mile, Mile, Miley, with the specific intention of committing a murder with him. They encountered 15-year-old Charles Miranda standing close to the Starwood nightclub. He was hitchhiking along the Santa Monica Boulevard. So Bonin and Miley pull up. They offer Charles a ride. He accepts and he gets into the van. According to Miley, Bonin and Charles engaged in consensual sex in the rear of the van as he drove before Bonin said to him, quote, kid's going to die, kid's going to, this kid's going to die. Miley replied, stating, quote, why don't you just let the kid go? Bonin apparently rejected this, stating, quote, no, because he'll know us and know the van. So again, he's sticking to that claim he had made when he last got out of jail that he was not going to leave any victims alive to be able to testify against him in the future. So after this, Charles is overpowered by Bonin, who asked Charles how much money he had. Charles said that he had about $6, after which Bonin told Miley to take Charles's wallet. Bonin then beat, bound, and gagged Charles, and he then told Charles about how he had been robbed earlier that day, and that though it, quote, wasn't fair that Charles was going to be killed, um, he apparently, you know, said, I have no other choice. So he's like, it's totally not fair that this is happening to you because I got robbed by somebody else earlier in the day, but too bad, so sad, we're already here, and this has to happen to you. So after this, um, initially, Charles was like, you know, not wanting to believe it, not willing to believe it, um, but, you know, after Bonin did not let up on this, Charles began crying and begging for his life. Bonin then began sexually assaulting Charles, and Miley also attempted to rape Charles, but was unable to perform, quote-unquote. He was unable to, you know, sustain an erection while this was happening. So in frustration for this, Miley assaulted Charles with various sharp objects before assisting Bonin in beating him. Bonin then strangled Charles to death with a t-shirt and a tire iron as Miley repeatedly jumped on Charles' chest. Charles's nude corpse was dumped shortly thereafter in an alleyway alongside East 2nd Street in Los Angeles. So, now this is just kind of a show of the state of mind that um, Bonin was in this night because it, it was five minutes, five or ten minutes after the pair had just discarded Charles Miranda's body that Bonin suggested to Miley that they go and pick up another victim. Miley initially protested this and stated that he wanted to go home, but he did eventually comply with Bonin's insistence. A few hours later, Bonin and Miley spotted 12-year-old James McCabe, who was standing at a bus stop after having been dropped off there by his older brother. Bonin and Miley lured James into the van under the guise that they would take him to his intended destination. And this just breaks my heart. The intended destination he was trying to get to um, was Disneyland. 
So they're like, we'll take you to Disneyland. Come on, get in our van. And mind you, this is a 12-year-old boy. So, you know, you have a little bit of world weariness when you're 12, but not nearly enough to have the sort of sense to, you know, not get into a car with strangers who are, you know, offering to take you to Disneyland. So he was probably thinking... You know, awesome, great. I don't have to spend my money on bus fare. They're going to go ahead and take me to Disneyland and I can spend my money there. And this poor, poor baby just had no idea what he was getting into. So once James was in the van, um, Bonin and Miley offered him some marijuana as a way to, quote, sweeten the deal. Um, and according to Miley, James did willingly get into the back of the van with Bonin, who immediately started hugging and kissing him. Bonin quickly flipped a switch after this, so he was nice, kind, sweet to James before this, and then, you know, he just had that that switch flip in him where it's like we talked about um, with the story of David McVicker, how he was very kind and open and conversational at the beginning. And then something happens and he just goes dead behind the eyes. And that's that's exactly what happened here with, with James. So after the switch flips, Bonnet binds James up in the back of the van and starts to tell him that he was being kidnapped for ransom. In order to further subdue James, Bonnet repeatedly kicked him in the stomach, mouth, and legs. And again, mind you, James is 12 years old and he's not very large. So all of this, this additional beating is just completely i mean everything that's happening here is unnecessary and terrible and horrible but the fact that he was small he was 12 bonnet at this point i think is like well into his 20s if i have the timeline right if i have the ages right you know i'm not looking at it i can't remember off the top of my head but what i'm trying to get that is there's a significant age a significant age and size difference here and mind you there's another person gregory miley is also here it is two grown men against a 12-year-old child, and yet he has to subdue him further by just beating him, kicking him in the head, in the mouth, in the legs, in the stomach. It's just, it's horrible. Like, it's so terrible. I can't even think what this poor boy was going through when this was happening to him. So Miley is, again, driving the van when this is happening in the back, and he is essentially just driving around aimlessly and listening to James's desperate cries while Bonin raped him and continuously beat him over the head with a tire iron. Bonin then forced James to take a nap in his arms, so he just brutally assaults this poor boy and further is terrorizing him by now forcing him to take a nap, go to sleep, a state where you are arguably the most vulnerable you're ever going to be while you're asleep, forcing him to take a nap in the arms of the man who just brutally attacked him. So James somehow did fall asleep, and when he awoke, Miley then joined in on beating him just because Miley, quote, just felt like it. A fucking monster. Both these men, fucking monsters. After the beating, Bonin crushed James's throat with the tire iron and then strangled him to death with his own t-shirt. James's body was dumped near a construction site in Walnut, and the body was discovered three days later, fully clothed, bearing several skull fractures and a bruised penis. Following the murder, Bonin and Miley went to lunch using the money they had stolen from James's wallet. 
One day after Charles Miranda and McCabe's murder, Bonin was arrested for violating the conditions of his parole. So, if only they had gotten him a day earlier. God forbid. Um, couldn't have gotten him a day earlier, fortunately. You know, would have, could have, should have. We wish a lot of things could have happened differently, but this one is just really, really unfortunate. A day earlier and two young boys would probably still be alive. So Bonin was again arrested for violating his parole. He was remanded in custody at the Orange County Jail and he stayed there until March 4th. Following his release, Bonin obtained more secure employment as a truck driver at his former Montebello workplace at Dependable Driveaway. He was earning about $5 an hour. So he somehow, even as a felon, even on parole, managed to get a pretty decently um, paying job. So while delivering the trucks, Bonin frequently argued with his boss, who was unaware of his status as a sex offender, for picking up a hitchhiker in his presence on one occasion and taking longer, unnecessary routes, which detectives would actually take interest in later on. So I do believe that Bonin was using not only these truck routes, but also his, these like work trucks occasionally to aid and abet in the crimes that he was committing. So his boss was his boss was correct to be suspicious of him and to get angry at him obviously picking up hitchhikers and taking longer than was necessary on these routes. The boss caught on to, you know, the fact that, you know, Bonin was pretty suspicious, pretty suspicious. Uh but unfortunately the boss did not fire him for these things. He was just kind of always on his ass about it. He should have fired him. 110%. He should have fired him. So, 10 days after Bonin's release from custody on March 14th, he abducted 18-year-old Ronald Gatlin. After assaulting him, Bonin began to hack at Ronald's face with an ice pick. Again, just absolutely brutal. Absolutely brutal. Ronald was beaten and sodomized, suffering several deep perforating ice pick wounds to the ear and neck before being strangled with a ligature. He also bore signs of extensive beating. The following day, his body was found behind an industrial building in the city of Duarte. One week later, on March 21st, Bonin offered a ride to 14-year-old hitchhiker Glenn Barker. Barker was also beaten and raped with objects, then strangled with a ligature. His neck had numerous burns made by a cigarette, and he had severe trauma to his rectum. At approximately 4.07 p.m. on the same day, 15-year-old Russell Rue was abducted from a bus stop in Garden Grove. Russell intended on hitchhiking a ride to his job at a fast food restaurant before he encountered Bonnie. Ronald was bound, beaten, and strangled to death after an estimated eight hours of captivity before his body was discarded alongside that of Glenn Barker's in Cleveland National Forest, which was close to the Ortega Highway. Both nude bodies were found on March 23rd, and both bore evidence of extensive beating and ligature marks on their wrists, ankles, and neck. So, there was one Friday evening in March of 1980, where Bonin offered 17-year-old William Pugh a ride home as the pair were leaving their mutual friend Everett Frazier's home. Within minutes of accepting the ride, Bonin asked Pugh whether or not he would like to engage in sex with him. Um, Pew later stated that he panicked and stuttered upon hearing this question, 
and after sitting in silence for several minutes, he attempted to leave the van once Bonin had slowed it to stop at a stoplight. In response to this, Bonin grabbed William Pugh by the collar and dragged him back into the passenger seat. According to Pugh, Bonin entered an irritable state before confiding in him that he enjoyed abducting young male hitchhikers on Friday and Saturday nights, so he had time to take his girlfriend roller skating on Sundays. He also added that he would restrain and abuse the victims before strangling them to death with their own t-shirts. Bonin then informed Pugh, quote, if you want to kill somebody, you should make a plan and find a place to dump the body before you even pick a victim. Bonin further explained that he had not chosen to refrain from sexually assaulting and murdering Pugh out of sentiment. Instead, Pugh had been spared because he and Bonin had been seen together leaving Everett Frazier's party. So he was not trying, again, not trying to be attached to anyone or anything that could be, you know, followed back to him. So he's like, he's like, don't get it twisted. I'm not sparing you because I like you or because I have any feelings of sentiment towards you. I am only sparing you because we were seen leaving this party together and I'm not trying to get caught again. So Pew was then driven home, and once he was let out of the van, he sprinted inside of his house, absolutely terrified that if he hesitated in any way, shape, or form, that Bonin was going to change his mind and would pull him back into the van and kill him. So whether it was due to his own fear of Bonin or something else, William Pew actually soon became another one of Bonin's accomplices. On March 25th, 1980, Bonin and Pugh abducted 15-year-old runaway Harry Turner from a Los Angeles street. Harry was recently homeless, having fled from a boy's home in Lancaster only four days prior to meeting Bonin and Pugh. Pugh was to later testify that he and Bonin lured Turner into Bonin's van with an offer of $20 for sex. After binding and sodomizing Harry, Bonin bit into Harry's penis until it tore and bled. Bonin then ordered Pugh to beat him up, referring to Harry, and after Pew had bludgeoned and beat Harry about the head and body for several minutes, Bonin strangled Harry to death with his own t-shirt and a tire iron before discarding his body at the rear delivery door to a Los Angeles business. Harry's genitals had been mutilated, and he had eight skull fractures inflicted by a blunt instrument. On April 10, 1980, Bonin was discharged uh, from parole following his March 4th release. So he is, at this point, even though he violated it and had to go back to jail for violating parole, he still somehow ends up getting released, getting discharged from parole on April 10th. And on this day, he also encountered 16-year-old Stephen Wood, who was walking to school. Stephen's older brother had actually introduced him to Bonin, so Stephen knew Bonin. So when Bonin pulled up and offered him a ride, Stephen willingly got into Bonin's van. And Stephen's nude and hogtied and extensively beaten body was discarded in a long beach alleyway beside a dumpster with his head resting against a nearby beach close to the Pacific Coast Highway. And Stephen's autopsy revealed that he had been killed by ligature strangulation. Not even three weeks later, on April 29th, Bonin encountered 19-year-old Darren Kendrick while parked in the grounds of the Stanton supermarket where Darren worked. Um, Bonin lured Darren into his van on the pretext of selling him drugs. Bonin then drove to Butts' apartment in Lakewood, where the three of them began listening to music as they sat on Butts' couch. When Bonin asked Darren whether he was gay, Darren attempted to flee. 
but Bonin and Butts overpowered and bound him, in which after which Butts sodomized him. And while this was happening, um, Bonin simply raised the sound of Butts' stereo system to drown out Darren's screams. Um, after this, Butts then held Darren's mouth open while Bonin poured a chloral hydrate down his throat, causing Darren to sustain caustic chemical burns to his mouth, chin, stomach, and chest. Darren fiercely fought Bonin and Butts while this was happening, including scratching and biting them, but he was unable to fight further when he got too dizzy and vomited onto the carpet. Bonin noticed that Darren was whimpering and starting to lose consciousness. Um, while he was assaulting him, he was starting to lose consciousness. So after Bonin um, essentially finished what he was doing, Bonin strangled Darren as Butts drove an ice pick into Darren's ear, which caused a fatal wound to Darren's cervical spine. Darren's body was discarded behind a warehouse close to the Artesia Freeway, with the ice pick still protruding from his ear. In later testimony, Butts described the murder of Darren as such. Quote, the kid started fading out, just kind of whimpering. I don't like raping some limp piece of meat. It's no fun if they don't let me know how it feels. Guess we gave him too much of the stuff. Next time, I figured I wouldn't use as much. Anyways, I'd gotten my rocks off and the kid was getting boring, no fun anymore, so I strangled him, unquote. And this this just goes to show me that Vernon Butts was just as much of a fucking monster as William Bonin was. To say that it was no fun, quote-unquote, no fun to rape somebody who couldn't tell, couldn't scream and plead and cry and essentially, like he said, somebody who couldn't tell him how it felt. So he he wanted to hear his these victims suffering. He also, like Bonin, got off on causing pain to these poor boys. You know, we'll get into the prison sentences and what happened and, you know, Vernon Butts gets off way too fucking easy, I'll just tell you that. You know, no spoilers, but I guess maybe that is a spoiler, but he definitely gets off too, way too fucking easy. So, you know, that man was also a goddamn monster, just like William Bonin was. So, a few weeks later, on May, May 12th, 1980, Bonin abducted and murdered an acquaintance whom he later stated he had decided to kill when he had awoken that morning just because he was, quote, tired of having him around. So, no other reason, he said he just got, you know, sick of this person and for Bonin, when he gets sick of somebody, instead of just, you know, not seeing them, not being friends anymore, um, he decides to murder him. So the body of 17-year-old Lawrence Sharp was discarded behind a Westminster gas station. This was the acquaintance that Bonin had decided to murder. His body was found on May 18th, and his autopsy revealed that in addition to being bound and sodomized, Lawrence had been extensively beaten about the face and body, then strangled with a ligature. One week after the murder of Lawrence Sharp, on the afternoon of May 19th, Bonin asked Butts to accompany him on a killing. On this occasion, however, Butts reportedly refused to accompany him. Operating alone, Bonin abducted 14-year-old Sean King from a bus stop in Downey. Sean was strangled to death before his body was discarded in Live Oak Canyon in Yucaipa. So at this point, the murders had attracted significant attention in the media. By early 1980, a $50,000 reward was offered for any information that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the perpetrators. 
And now I don't know if that was like fifteen fifty thousand dollars in nineteen eighty money or fifty thousand dollars in what it would be today. Um, but if it was like nineteen eighty money, if we were to convert that, that would be almost almost two hundred thousand dollars in twenty twenty four. So it was a pretty hefty reward for any information on you know the person or the people who were committing these murders because you know this these murders were happening very close one after the other. So they knew that they had they had a really significant case on on their hands and they needed to stop this person or these people as soon as possible because they were killing so frequently. Any time that was spent, I don't want to say wasted, but any time that they were spending not apprehending these perpetrators or not getting information they could use to follow leads was, you know, essentially just a ticking clock to the next time that another boy was going to be abducted and murdered. Bonin was actually avidly following the news media reports pertaining to his crimes, and he collected newspaper clippings documenting his own manhunt, often tuning in on radio and television coverage of the murders along with his accomplices. Having by this stage determined a definitive link between many of the murders committed within the previous year, investigators from various jurisdictions where the victims had been abducted or discovered had begun sharing information in their collective hunt for the perpetrators. So this is actually, you know, we see a lot in a lot of cases where there is, you know, um, not good police work or where it takes the police a while to kind of get it together and start linking crimes and figuring out that it's, you know, one person, it's a serial killer, essentially. Um, It happens because, you know, if there is various districts involved, of course, this isn't every single time if a serial killer is not committing crimes in various jurisdictions. But, you know, most often they are committing across multiple jurisdictions. If the police don't share information with each other, it makes the investigation very, very difficult because they're each only working with a partial piece of the puzzle. So the fact that these jurisdictions did decide to share information really, really helped with the investigation into these crimes. So six officers from three of the jurisdictions in which the now dubbed Freeway Killer had most regularly either abducted or deposited the bodies of this victim formed a task force dedicated to the apprehension of the suspects or suspects who, at this point, were striking at an astonishing average rate of once every two weeks by the spring of 1980. So again, these murders were incredibly frequent and the police knew that they had to act fast if they wanted to apprehend these perpetrators before they struck again. By May of 1980, William Pugh had been arrested for auto theft and was housed at the Los Padrinos Juvenile Courthouse. So they at least, you know, unbeknownst to them, they have one person in custody at this point who was involved in these crimes. Um, And on May 28th, Pugh overheard the details of the ongoing murders on a local radio broadcast and actually confided to a counselor um, his recognition of the similarities between the perpetrator's M.O. and the method by which Bonin both told and showed him that he kidnapped and murdered his victims. This counselor reported Pugh's suspicion to the police, who in turn relayed the information to LAPD Homicide Sergeant John St. John. And that is like, that is like such a detective name. Like, I am John St. John. Like, you would see that in like some, some like buddy cop detective movie where like John St. John is is a big badass detective. So I don't know, something about that name, John St. John. And let me tell you, John St. John got some shit done. 
So upon hearing the confidential tip from the counselor, St. John conducted an extensive interview with Pew the following day. Although Pew withheld the fact that he had accompanied Bonin on one of his murders, the information he provided led St. John to deduce that Bonin might be the freeway killer. The same day Pew had informed police of Bonin's involvement, Bonin invited 18-year-old homeless thrifter James Monroe to move into the um, home he was living on Angel Street that he shared with his mother and older brother, and the only thing that Monroe had to give him in exchange for living there was sexual favors. Monroe was a runaway from St. Clair, Michigan, who had been evicted from his family's home in early 1980. While living with Bonin at the Angel Street home, Monroe entered into a consensual sexual relationship with him. He also accepted a job at the delivery firm where Bonin worked and occasionally was allowed to drive Bonin's van. Monroe later described his initial impression of Bonin as being, quote, a good guy, really normal. On June 1st, Bonin took Monroe roller skating with his girlfriend before abruptly informing Monroe that night that he wanted them both to abduct, sexually assault, and murder a teenage hitchhiker. Meanwhile, John St. John was looking into Bonin's history. Um, And this history revealed that Bonin had an extensive criminal background, which, you know, going back from part one, (laughs) we know, you know, that he had a very, very colored criminal background, and John St. John is now discovering this. And he also finds that Bonin had served time in prison for the kidnapping and rape of young men and boys prior. St. John assigned a surveillance team to monitor Bonin's movements. The surveillance of Bonin began on the evening of June 2nd, and this was one hour prior to Bonin and Monroe discarding the body of who would be the final freeway killer victim. On the evening of June 2nd, Bonin, accompanied by Monroe, encountered 18-year-old Stephen Wells standing at a bus stop on El Segundo Boulevard. Bonin and Monroe lured Stephen into the van, and according to Monroe, upon learning Stephen was bisexual, Bonin and Stephen began to engage in sexual acts in the back of the van. Bonin soon invited Stephen back to his parents' home, where they proceeded to further engage in sex on Bonin's parents' bed. Bonin sent Monroe out of the home under the guise of buying some food for the three of them, and when Monroe returned, Bonin had convinced Stephen to allow him to tie him up with clothesline, offering Stephen $200 to do it. Once Stephen was tied up, Bonin called Monroe back into the room. At this, Stephen began to panic, suspicious of Bonin and Monroe's intentions. Bonin then went to the kitchen to get some water, where he informed Monroe that together, they were going to kill Stephen. He then dragged Stephen into the hallway where he gagged and beat him, telling Stephen, quote, you're going to do what I tell you to do, unquote. Stephen pled for his life. Bonin then stole $10 out of Stephen's wallet while he stated his intention to, quote, leave Stephen's body on a park bench somewhere. He then strangled Stephen to death with a t-shirt and tire iron. Monroe asked whether Wells was dead, prompting Bonin to laugh as he replied, quote, yeah, stupid before adding, quote, haven't you ever seen a dead body before? Bonin then threw Stephen's t-shirt across the hallway before ordering Monroe to retrieve a cardboard box from his older brother's room. The two placed Stephen's body inside this cardboard box, which they then carried to Bonin's van. At approximately 9 p.m., the two drove, Butts's, drove to Butts's Lakewood apartment as Bonin informed Monroe that he, Butts, and others had committed many of the freeway killer murders. At Butts' apartment, the trio engaged in brief conversation before Bonin invited Butts to view Wells' body with the enticement of, quote, You got it in the van. It's a good one. Come out and see it. 
according to Monroe, but who at the time was actually dressed in a Darth Vader costume, rotted the body before replying, quote, oh, you got another one. He then complimented Bonin, stating, good job, Billy, you did a really good one. Bonin subsequently asked for advice as to where to dispose of the corpse. At Bonin's subsequent trial, Monroe recalled Butts recommending they discard Stephen near a gas station. Monroe also later testified that Butts had actively dissuaded Bonin from discarding Stephen's body in the nearby canyons due to the late hour and the general police presence caused by recent media coverage of the murders. They then drove to a disused gas station in Huntington Beach where they wedged Stephen's nude corpse between a chain-link fence and a truck. The body was discovered five hours later by two brothers who had parked nearby to fix a flat tire. After nine days of uneventful surveillance, on June 11, 1980, police observed Bonin driving in a seemingly random manner throughout Hollywood, unsuccessfully attempting to lure five separate teenage boys into his van before eventually succeeding in luring one into his vehicle. The police followed Bonin until his van parked at a service station. Um, This was a lot that was close to the Hollywood freeway. And when the van was parked, the police discreetly decided to discreetly approach the vehicle. Upon hearing muffled screams and banging sounds coming from inside the van, the officers forced their way into the vehicle. And inside the van, they caught Bonin in the act of raping 17-year-old Harry T- uh, Harold Tate, whom he had handcuffed and bound inside the van. Initially charged with the rape of a minor and held on suspicion of the murder of Charles Miranda, Bonin was detained in lieu of a $250,000 bond. So... Essentially, they're like, yeah, we're not even going to give you the chance. You know, we don't think you have 250K, but, you know, we're not even going to give you the chance to bond out. So he was remanded without bond. Shortly thereafter, Bonin's girlfriend notified his boss of his arrest, adding that the arrest was in connection to the freeway killer case and causing Monroe, who was already on edge because of Bonin's absence from work that day, to become frantic. The following day, Monroe stole Bonin's car and fled to his um, native state of Michigan, where he resided temporarily with a friend before his arrest. Inside Bonin's van, investigators discovered numerous items pointing to his involvement in the freeway killer murders. These items included various restraining devices, such as lengths of nylon cord, an assortment of knives, a tire iron, and household implements, such as pliers and wire coat hangers. A forensic examination of the interior of Bonin's van in later sections of his home was also re- also revealed extensive traces of bloodstains. They also discovered that the inner handles from the passenger side and rear doors of his van had been removed in an obvious effort to prevent victims from escaping the vehicle. Inside the glove box, investigators also discovered a scrapbook of newspaper clippings related to the murders. Upon his arrest, Bonin initially denied any involvement with the freeway killer murders. However, after John St. John presented Bonin with an impassioned letter from the mother of Sean King, begging him to reveal the location of her son's body, Bonin began confessing to the murders. But now, you know, don't go thinking that Bonin started confessing out of the gut of his heart or any sense of regret. Um, Bonin made sure to clarify that, it, you know, his confessions were not to ease this mother's pain, any of the parents' pain. Um, But it was because the knowledge that, you know, he essentially revealed Sean King's body because he knew that King was buried in San Bernardino County, which would have been, like, a long trip for them to get to. It would, you know, basically, like, a day of driving, 
him taking in them to the body and then driving him back to the to the jail. So he figured that because it was a long trip, the police would buy him a hamburger for lunch. So he essentially he was like, I was, you know, I was really craving a hamburger. And I knew that if I told them where Sean King's body was, I know it's all the way out in San Bernardino County. They're going to drive me out there and they're going to buy me a burger, you know, on the way back for lunch. So no remorse, no sort of you know, regret, nothing. This motherfucker just wanted a hamburger. He's like, sure, I'll take you to the body because I figure you're going to buy me a burger on the way back. Over the course of several evenings, Bonnet confessed to abducting, raping, and killing 21 young men and boys in increasingly graphic detail. He expressed no remorse for his actions, but he did demonstrate extreme embarrassment and regret over having been caught. An Orange County investigator later recalled that there was there, quote, was not a policeman in that room that did not want to kill Bonin, unquote, for his confessions. Bonin stated to authorities that his primary accomplice in the murders had been Vernon Butts, with Gregory Miley and James Monroe being active accomplices in other murders. Bonin was physically linked to many of the murders by blood and semen stains and numerous distinctive green Triskelion-shaped carpet fibers found upon several of the victims' bodies, which were forensically proven to be a precise match with the carpeting in the rear of Bonnet's van. Furthermore, upon three victims' bodies, investigators had discovered hair samples which were proven to be a precise match with Bonnet. Medical evidence also revealed that six of the murders for which Bonnet was charged with were committed by a unique windless strangulation method, which was later referred by the prosecutor at Bonnet's Los Angeles County trial as, quote, a signature a trademark. So like that windlass method that they were talking about is essentially like that method of like garroting he was using where he would tangle the tire iron in the t-shirt and like twist the tire iron to tighten the t-shirt and strangle his victims. And he strangled like every single victim, almost every single victim, if not all, maybe there were a few that weren't used with that exact method, but that was a hundred percent his signature. That is the way that he killed the majority of his victims was with this method. So the prosecutor was very correct in calling it, you know, a signature or a trademark. Initially formally arraigned for the murder of um, Marcus Grabs on July 25th, by July 29th, Bonin had been charged with an additional 15 murders to which he had confessed and upon which the prosecution believed they had sufficient evidence to obtain a conviction. In addition to the 16 murder indictments, Bonin was also charged with 11 counts of robbery, one count of sodomy, and one count of mayhem, and he was held without bond. He said, yeah, there's no fucking chance you're getting out, even on bond. <laughs> so they said, no, sir, you're going to fucking sit in prison until your trial. So based on Bonin's confession, police obtained a warrant authorizing a search of Vernon Butts' Lakewood property on the same date as Bonin's initial arraignment. This search uncovered evidence linking Butts to several of the murders to which Bonin had already confessed. Butts was brought before a municipal court on July 29th charged with accompanying Bonin on six murders committed between August 1979 and April 1980. In a press statement relating to the police investigation into the murders issued on this date, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department stated, quote, Bonin and Butts are believed to be responsible for the kidnapping, torture, and murder of at least 21 young males between May 1979 and June 1980, unquote, 14 of which had been committed in their jurisdiction. Despite initially proclaiming his innocence, Butts soon confessed to having accompanied Bonin upon each of the murder forays listed each of the charges against him and to have actively participated in the sexual abuse of several victims. 
In his confession, Butts claimed to have participated in the murders primarily out of fear, claiming, quote, it was either go or become the next victim, unquote, adding that he only found the courage to confess upon hearing that Bonin was in custody. Which, eh, I don't know if I believe that. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm giving Vernon Butts the benefit of the doubt on that. Not, not going back to some of the shit he said about the enjoyment he got out of, you know, raping these victims. So I don't believe for a fucking second that he was only doing this because he was afraid of William Bonin. Butts was also adamant that he only had a limited role in the actual torture of the victims, but confessed to actively participating in the torture of one victim. Which one that was, I couldn't find specifically, but I think that's bullshit too. I think he was actively participating in, in every single one of the murders that he accompanied Bonin. Discussing the actual murder forays, Butts claimed that upon their successfully luring a victim into the van, he would typically drive a short distance before stopping the vehicle in order to assist Bonin in restraining their victim before driving in an aimless manner as Bonin abused and tortured their captive in the rear of the van. Butts claimed his participation in the murders was typically limited to restraining the victim, although he admitted to mutilating one victim with a wire coat hanger. When asked why some victims had been subjected subjected to more extensive blunt force trauma than others, Butts stated that in many instances, Bonin would escalate the level of beatings if the victim had resisted his sexual advances. Butts was formally charged with participating in three further murders committed in this county, and his trial was scheduled for July 27, 1981. On July 31st, Mon James Monroe was arrested in his hometown of Port Huron, Michigan, he was extradited to California and charged with the murder of Stephen Wells. Monroe pleaded innocent to all charges against him on August 14th. On August 22nd, Gregory Miley was arrested in Texas and subsequently charged by California authorities with the murders of Charles Miranda and James McCabe. Miley was arrested after having confessed to his culpability in the Miranda and McCabe murders in a recorded phone conversation with a friend, and this also substantiated Bonin's own earlier confession about these two murders. He initially pleaded innocent to the two charges of first-degree murder on December 18th, but pleaded guilty at two separate pretrial hearings in May of 1981. Initially, at a preliminary hearing held in Los Angeles County on January 2nd, 1981, Bonin formally pleaded innocent to 14 first-degree murder charges and numerous counts of sodomy, robbery, and mayhem. In 11 of these indictments, a felony, a felony murder-robbery special circumstance was also alleged. On the same date, Butts was arraigned on five counts of murder in addition to three counts of robbery. However, Butts would never go on to see his day in court because four days after his formal plea was made, Butts committed suicide by hanging himself with a towel in his cell. A subsequent coroner's investigation revealed Butts had unsuccessfully attempted to take his own life on at least four occasions prior to his arrest. Uh, Butts's attorney, Joe Ingber, theorized that Butts's depressive state had been magnified by the impending release of transcripts of his client's testimony at the preliminary hearing, in which Butts had graphically described the torture the victims had endured prior to their murder. So this is another reason, too, why I don't believe for a single second that Butts was not an active participant, because the way that he described, like, he described the torture in a in a way that was much more graphic than necessary. It was like he was getting into such significant detail with these things because he enjoyed, he enjoyed recounting stories of them. So 
you know, I don't believe for a second that he didn't have more of a hand in these murders than he was claiming he did. And, you know, of course, we'll never get to know because he, you know, instead of facing up to what he had done, he decided to hang himself in his cell instead of facing his charges. So Buds had been offered multiple deals for a lesser sentence in exchange for testifying against Bonin, but up to the date of his suicide, Butts had not accepted any of the deals. And I think he didn't accept any of the deals because he always intended to kill himself, you know, and not actually have to face any repercussions for his crimes. So both Miley and Monroe did agree to testify against Bonin at his impending trials in exchange for being spared the death penalty. Um, the DA also agreed to dismiss the additional charges of robbery and sodomy against Monroe if he testified. For Miley, the DA agreed to accept two separate pleas of guilty to first-degree murder in exchange for two concurrent life sentences without the poss- with the possibility of parole after 25 years in exchange for Miley's testimony. William Pugh also agreed to testify, having pled guilty to one count of voluntary manslaughter, for which he later received six years in prison. Bonin was brought to trial in Los Angeles County, charged with the murder of 12 of his victims whose bodies had been found within this constituency on October 19, 1981, with the trial commencing on November 5, 1981. The prosecution sought the death penalty for each count of murder for which Bonin was tried, stating in the opening speech to the jury, quote, We will prove he is the freeway killer, as he has bragged to a number of witnesses. We will show you that he enjoyed the killings. Not only did he enjoy it and plan to enjoy it, he had an insatiable demand, an insatiable appetite, not only for sodomy, but for killing. The prosecution further asserted that Bonin considered murder a group sport and would typically groom people of low mentality to participate in many of his murders. Miley and Monroe testified against Bonin at his Los Angeles County trial, describing in graphic detail the murders in which they had accompanied Bonin. Monroe stated that shortly after the murder of Stephen Wells, he and Bonin drove to a McDonald's restaurant and purchased hamburgers with the $10 taken from Wells' wallet. As they had eaten the burgers at Bonin's home, Bonin laughed and mused, quote, Thanks, Steve, wherever you are. Miley testified to his participation in the murders of Charles Miranda and James McCabe, describing in graphic detail how the two victims were beaten and tortured with various instruments before their murders, and how he had heard, quote, a bunch of bones cracking, unquote, as Bonin had pressed a tire iron against Charles Miranda's neck. Several members of the audience hastily left the courtroom as Monroe and Miley delivered their testimony, later stating to reporters gathered outside the courtroom that they had found the recited details too nauseating. The strategy of Bonin's defense team was to challenge the credibility of the numerous prosecution witness, witnesses and to suggest that extremely significant mitigating factors as to the root cause of Bonin's behavior lay in the extensive physical, sexual, and emotional abuse he had encountered throughout his early life. To support this claim, the defense called Dr. David Foster, who testified that as a result of repeated abandonment as a child, Bonin had not received the nurturing, protection, and behavioral feedback necessary for sufficient psychological development. Foster also stated that pervasive physical, sexual, and emotional abuse had been so consistent and prevalent that Bonin held a confusion as to the differences between violence and love. In a direct rebuttal, the prosecution summoned forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz, who testified that the overall pattern of Bonin's behavior was inconsistent with an inability to control his impulses. Dietz further testified as to Bonin's actions being reflective of planning as opposed to impulsive behavior 
In summary, Dietz concluded that Bonin was a sexual sadist and that although he suffered from antisocial personality disorder, neither of these conditions had impaired his ability to control his actions. On November 24th, prison inmate Lloyd Douglas testified that Bonin had bragged to him of his culpability in the freeway killer murders while both were incarcerated in Los Angeles County Jail in the summer of 1980. According to Douglas, Bonin had held a newspaper article aloft before saying to him, quote, these are the little boys I got a hold of, unquote. Bonin's first trial lasted until January 6, 1982. On this date, the jury convicted Bonin of 10 of the murders for which he was tried, although he was found not guilty on the murders of Lundgren and King, of committing sodomy upon grabs, of committing mayhem upon Lundgren, and of robbing one other victim. The following day, the prosecution and defense made alternate pleas for the actual sentence the jury should decide, with the prosecution requesting the death penalty and the defense requesting life imprisonment. On January 20th, the jury further found that the special circumstances required within California state law, multiple murders and robbery, had been met in the 10 murder cases for which they had found Bonin guilty and thus unanimously recommended he receive the death penalty. Bonin was cleared of the sodomy and murder of King because he had led police to the body of the victim in December of 1980, with the agreement that his leading police to the body could not be used against him in court, and therefore the prosecutors had discussed King's disappearance at the trial, but not the discovery of his body. He was cleared of the charges of mayhem and murder against Lundgren because he had strenuously denied committing this particular killing in the interviews he had granted to a reporter named David Lopez, who had testified extensively at the trial. Upon announcing the death penalty for Bonin, Judge William Keane stated, quote, he had a total disregard for the sanctity of human life and a civilized society. Sadistic, unbelievably cruel, senseless, and deliberately premeditated. Guilty beyond any possible or imaginary doubt. Though he was already sentenced to death, Bonin still faced a second trial for the murders he had committed in Orange County. So Bonin was brought to trial in Orange County, charged with the robbery and murder of four further victims who had been found murdered within this jurisdiction, between November of 1979 and May of 1980, and he was brought to trial on March 21, 1983. The prosecution in the Orange County trial contended that all four victims killed within this constituency had been abducted while hitchhiking, then ordered to strip before being bound, with, bound about the wrists and ankles. Each of the four victims had then endured rape, beatings, torture, and finally ligature strangulation. The prosecution also pointed to the similarities between the crimes in Orange County and those in Los Angeles that Bonin had already been convicted and sentenced to death for. These contentions were refuted by the defense, who contended that any similarities in M.O. did not constitute automatic proof of Bonin's guilt, and that the evidence presented did not support the prosecution's contention beyond a reasonable doubt that Bonin had murdered any of the four Orange County victims. During the six-week trial, Bonin's attorneys called two witnesses in his defense, one of whom was James Monroe, who conceded Bonin had communicated with him prior to his testifying in the second trial, requesting that he lie when called to deliver his testimony. On August 1st, both counsels delivered their closing arguments before the jury, who then retired to consider their verdicts. The jury deliberated for less than three hours before announcing on August 2nd that they found Bonin guilty of each of the four murders in addition to three counts of robbery. After three days of deliberations as to the actual penalty to be imposed upon Bonin, the jury announced on August 22nd their recommendations that he be sentenced to death on each count. Um, 
the sentencing was then postponed. Uh, the formal sentencing was postponed until August 26th. And on this date, Bonin received four further death sentences, with the presiding judge describing Bonin as sadistic and guilty of, quote, monstrous criminal conduct. While on death row, Bonin engaged in hobbies such as painting and writing short stories, and he often also communicated with the mothers of his victims. Not because he felt any remorse, but because he seemed to derive pleasure from withholding information from them and furthering their suffering. So it wasn't enough for him to have killed these poor mother's children. He was now additionally getting satisfaction from prolonging their suffering because he would make it seem like, you know, it was essentially like, oh, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, if you write a letter or something to like the parole board or help me with my appeals, like I'll tell you something about like the murder of your son. And then he would just keep like, like pulling like baiting them essentially and just like pulling it further and further and further away just because he got that sick satisfaction about knowing that he was causing these mothers pain um, by continually leading them on and giving them this hope that they were going to find out more information about what had happened to their children when he had no intention of telling them, you know, anything further at all. On one occasion, Bonin informed the mother of victim Sean King that her son had been his favorite victim as, quote, he was such a scrape. While incarcerated, Bonin made friends with several other serial killers, notably Lawrence Bittaker, who was one half of the Toolbox Killers, and Randy Kraft, who was one of two others with whom Bonin actually shared the moniker of the Freeway Killer. Bonin filed numerous appeals against his convictions and sentencing, citing issues such as jury prejudice, the potential of jury inflammation via listening to numerous victim impact statements, an inadequate defense as the basis for each appeal. Each successive appeal proved unsuccessful, with the U.S. Supreme Court refusing to overturn Bonin's death penalty convictions in August of 1988 and January of 1989. On February 20th, 1996, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals rejected a plea for clemency submitted by Bonin's attorneys on the grounds of inadequate legal representation in both trials. Scarcely one hour prior to his scheduled execution, the Supreme Court refused to hear Bonin's final plea to overturn his death sentence, with the convened panel in almost unanimous agreement that Bonin's own attorneys um, had not failed to give their client adequate legal representation. They said, your attorneys were fine, you're not appealing on the basis of that. Furthermore, these appellate judges ruled that Bonin's attorneys should have not waited until the last minute to submit arguments to overturn or postpone the impending death sentence of their client. They're like, yeah, y'all waited way too long. He's about to get executed in an hour. <laughs> you should have done this way sooner. So Bonin was executed by lethal injection inside the gas chamber at San Quentin State Prison on February 23rd, 1996. He was the first person to be executed by lethal injection in the history of California, and his execution occurred 14 years after his first death sentence had been imposed. In a final interview given to, local ra- given to a local radio station less than 24 hours before he was executed, Bonin claimed that he had made peace with the fact that he was about to die, adding that his only major regret in life was that he had not pursued his teenage passion of bowling long enough to have turned professional. You know, nothing to do with the fact that he murdered 21, you know, young teenage boys. He, he was just upset with himself that he never pursued a career in professional bowling. Like, fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. I'm so on the fence about the death penalty just because there's 
you know, there's too much to get into that. I'm, I'm very, I'm very 50-50 with it. Um, but in this case, 100% fucking deserved. William Bonin should not have been allowed to stay alive because he was clearly continuing to derive satisfaction. Like him sitting in jail thinking about what he had done was not a punishment. He liked thinking about what he did. He liked talking about it. He liked talking to the parents of his victims about what he did. So like that was not justice. As long as he would stay alive and could relive these crimes, like that was not justice. So I am a hundred percent a proponent that William Bonin at least deserved the death penalty. Uh, Bonin also expressed his disagreement with the state's decision to execute him, stating, quote, a lot of people believe I should die for what I've done. I don't agree. Unquote. Before further elaborating, quote, I have no anger towards anybody, but that doesn't mean I don't think the death penalty is wrong. Unquote. Of course you think it's wrong. You fucking deserve it. Like, you don't want to die. You want to be able to sit there and relive all your crimes, you sicko. So Bonin continued to deny any responsibility for his actions in this interview he gave, stating, quote, I can say that I feel these people believe I'm guilty and that they feel that when I'm executed, that will put a closure to it. But that is not the case. And they're going to find that out. So not only was he like refusing to accept what he did and accept his fate, he was also doubling down being like, yeah, well, my dying is not going to give you guys any closure. So like, why kill me? It's not going to help you in any way, shape, or form. So Bonin was pronounced dead at 12.13 a.m. He was 49 at the time of his execution. None of Bonin's relatives chose to witness his execution, Although the event was witnessed by several relatives of his victims, many of whom wept and embraced when his death was officially confirmed. So fuck you, there's their closure. Bonin's family refused to claim his remains in the weeks following his execution. His remains were cremated in a private ceremony with none of his family members present, and Bonin's ashes were later scattered over the Pacific Ocean. So, like, fuck you, dude. You're such a horrible person that none of your family even wanted to claim your remains after you were dead. Like, that just goes to show how much of a fucking terrible person William Bonin was. He got cremated and just dumped into an ocean with all the other motherfuckers that nobody wanted to claim. Get wrecked. What you deserve. So in the years following Bonin's execution, David McVicker, the survivor of a kidnapping and rape by Bonin in 1975, has actively campaigned to ensure that his accomplices, Miley and Monroe, remain incarcerated. In one interview granted in 2011, McVicker stated the primary reason he had been inspired to campaign against their release were the words that one of his victim's mothers had spoken to him after he had testified at Bonin's first trial. And this was actually Stephen Wells' mother. And she had essentially told um, McVicker, you know, you've got to speak for my kid. Like, Stephen is not here to speak for himself. Like, you are one of the only people who survived an encounter with William Bonin. Like, please, please be the voice for my son and for all the other boys who were the unfortunate victims of Bonin and are not here to be to be voices for himself. And, you know, that is what has inspired um, David McVicker to continue speaking out against Miley and Monroe to make sure that they, you know, aren't able to get out of prison. So Monroe was sentenced to a term of 15 years to life for the second-degree murder of Stephen Wells on April 6th of 1981, and he has repeatedly appealed his sentence, claiming that he had not known Bonin had been the freeway killer until after Wells' murder, and that he had been tricked into accepting a plea bargain whereby he pleaded guilty to the second-degree murder charge. Monroe has repeatedly been denied parole and is incarcerated at Mule Creek State Prison. His next 
He is next available per- for parole in 2029. Uh, Gregory Miley was sentenced to a term of 25 years to life for the first degree murder of Charles Miranda um, by Superior Court judge on February 5th, 1982. Throughout the years of his incarceration, Miley was repeatedly reprimanded for violating prison rules. I said incarceration. It gets so hard to talk <laughs> when I've been going on. You know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to re, I'm going to re say that entire sentence. All right, let's, let's rewind it back. Throughout the years of his incarceration, Miley was repeatedly reprimanded for violating prison rules. These accrued reprimands had had included the possession of contraband drugs and attempting to engage in non-consensual sodomy with fellow inmates. On May 25th, 2016, Miley died of injuries he had sustained two days previously when he had been attacked by another inmate in an exercise yard in Mule Creek State Prison. William Pugh was sentenced to six years in prison for the voluntary manslaughter of Harry Turner on May 17th, 1982. Pugh had initially been charged with the first-degree murder of Turner in addition to companion charges of robbery and sodomy. However, after five days of deliberation, the jury found Pew guilty of the reduced charge of manslaughter and innocent of robbery and sodomy. He served less than four years of his sentence, and he was released in prison in late 1985. Wasn't able to find any information on what he was up to, you know, nowadays, but I would assume he's just trying to lead a relatively quiet life if he's still alive. Um, you know, not getting up to, to anything too crazy because William Pugh, you know, he did participate in a murder with Bonin, but he was he's the only accomplice that I could even give the benefit of the doubt saying that he only participated because he was terrified of Bonin, because Bonin, you know, had actively threatened him, you know, a couple days before, but still, it's not an excuse, but if any of them were going to be let out of prison on parole, you know, I could see William Pugh being that because, you know, his charge was manslaughter. I could, could, I guess say that he was I mean he's still culpable don't get me wrong he still participated in a murder and didn't say shit about it until he got arrested so he definitely should have done more prison time than he did but you know if any of them were going to get paroled you know at least I guess the one you know what's the word I'm looking for the one uh I don't know what I'm trying to say but the one who got released was the one who you could argue had the least culpability in you know the crime that he participated in should he have served more than four years? Absolutely. A hundred percent. He should have served more than four years. But, you know, at least, well, Vernon Butts killed himself. So he didn't want to face what he had done. Um, and then Monroe still in jail and Miley got murked in prison. So <laughs> they're all sitting exactly where they should be, in my opinion. So, you know, hopefully Monroe never gets out. He's up for parole in 2029. So hopefully, you know, he doesn't get let out because fuck that guy. He doesn't deserve it either. Um, but yeah, this was this was a long one. There was a lot of really heavy stuff in this one. So if you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. I will be posting again some photos related to uh, part two of this case on Instagram. So if you don't already follow the Instagram it's at TSRH Podcast, please go follow the Instagram. Um, feel free to leave comments. Feel free to DM me. Talk about your thoughts on the cases. If you have any um, cases that you would like to see covered on this podcast in the future, feel free to send those over on Instagram. If you're more of a Facebook person, you can follow us on Facebook at TSRH Podcast. And if you'd like to send us any emails, you can email us at TSRHpodcast at gmail.com. Um, but yeah, like I said, this was a long one. This was a heavy one. 
I'm going to go decompress. I'm going to go play some more Baldur's Gate. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for listening. I will see you guys on the next one. Bye.